Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Rosie Ween. Rosie is the CEO of Water Aid Australia. Rosie's passionate about human rights, gender equality, and leadership. She's worked in development for two decades, including six years living and working in the eastern islands of Indonesia. Rosie has worked at WaterAid Australia since its inception in 2004. She was Director of International Programs prior to becoming Chief Executive in 2016. Rosie's leadership manifesto focuses on being an authentic servant leader and a commitment to pushing beyond her comfort zone in all aspects of her life. This is where she believes she learns most and performs at her best. Rosie serves on the board of the Three Foundation and is a founder and committee member of the newly formed Not In My Workplace, a group of executive leaders working to address workplace harassment and abuse across all industries in Victoria. Rosie has recently discovered adventure and obstacle racing and electric bikes, which keeps her sane and healthy, and she is also a shamelessly proud mum of two boys. Rosie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Rachel. Now, you don't know this, but I I have a I have an Excel spreadsheet of all my favorite not-for-profit CEOs. And um you've been on that spreadsheet for a long time. <laughs> when I um when I, I, I worked for a not-for-profit before my current job and I just I, I got to come across a lot of CEOs in the sector and um your style of leadership and your passion for what you do always came through so strongly. And since I started this podcast, I've just been really excited to have you on the show. So this is a hugely exciting moment for me. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much, Rachel. That's very humbling. Um, Yeah, I really appreciate that feedback. Now, I want to start, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with WaterAid. For those that aren't, can we start with an overview of what WaterAid does and uh, what what you think makes WaterAid unique? WaterAid started when there was no other water sanitation and hygiene-focused NGO in the world. We were started back in the early 80s, and I think in part our beginning makes us unique. Um, We were started by a group of engineers in the UK that had attended a conference and travelled in particularly South South Asia and Africa and seen the water crisis, Um, and they decided to start WaterAid in the UK, and we've now grown to a global organisation working in over 30 countries. And we've retained that focus on water, sanitation and hygiene. And we've also retained um, the connection to our roots with the water industry. So here in Australia, we were started by a partnership with the water industry and the development sector. Um, And we've now grown and, and work in the region. And wherever we're working, we're working towards that vision of a world where everyone has access to water, sanitation and hygiene and recognising that as a, a small NGO, we can't do that alone. So we've got a really strong focus on partnerships and influencing. 
Okay. That's interesting. And, and when I was preparing for this episode, I saw that, as you've just mentioned, when WaterAid uh, launched globally, it was the first totally water-focused not-for-profit to emerge. So innovation and, and being a front-runner has obviously always been at the heart of what WaterAid does. Yeah, it has. It's always been, you know, really, I think one of the things that I find incredible about WaterAid is that focus that we've got. And yet within that focus of just water sanitation hygiene, there is so much to do and so much um, that we work on. And we're an organisation I'm very proud to be part of that really lives our values and a core part of our values is innovation um, and really thinking about what does better look like for water aid, what does better look like for the water sector, wherever it is that we're working. Mm, mm. Now, I think historically water and, and access to water and sanitation has not been prioritised to the same extent as perhaps healthcare and access to education have uh, that's my take on it, but would would you agree with that statement that that water has not been prioritised to the same extent as other areas of development, and why or why not? I absolutely agree with that statement, and it, it is in part why Water Aid was started because there was this gap in development historically. When we look just recently at the the Millennium Development Goals, we did achieve um, the target on uh, access to water but we missed by a long shot um, access to decent sanitation. And we can see globally that there is a real underinvestment in water and sanitation. And yet when we think about the goals, the sustainable development goals, water and sanitation are underpinning the success of so many of them. Just the two that you mentioned, healthcare and education, we know that access to, to safe water and toilets and good hygiene is essential to, to uh, goal three around universal health health coverage. How can health workers provide quality of care if they can't wash their hands before mm-hmm. treating patients? Um, yeah, so it's, it's... It's so true. And I know that you listened to our podcast episode with Annabelle Chauncey, uh, which is episode... 14 and and Annabelle and I spoke about this that you know she's coming from an education focus mm. not for profit but fully recognizes that education is best delivered uh simultaneously with other interventions um including healthcare and water and sanitation so it's a shame that we even have to have a conversation about what's the priority when I think we all in the sector recognize that all of it is it is, and it's. I think one of the things that I see that um, we're getting better and better at is partnerships, and I think Goal 17, partnerships and collaboration, is central to the success of the SDGs and the success of us bringing about some of these fundamental changes for the poorest people in the world. And it's one of the things for me that for water aid central to us achieving our vision is collaborating with other Mm. sectors so the health sector and and the education sector for example in Papua New Guinea our team's been working with both the education sector and the sports sector looking at how to get more of a focus on menstrual hygiene water and sanitation in schools through sport 
So it's wow, that's an interesting partnership. I feel like goal seventeen often gets lost a little bit because it's less tangible than education, healthcare. Um, I, f- I feel like from about maybe goal nine onwards, we start getting a bit confused mm-hmm. about what what actually like what is a what is a safe city and what, what are we saying here? But you're so right. Goal seventeen is is so important and and. Um, yeah, it's interesting to hear about this cross-sector collaboration. Is that is that a big part of WaterAid's strategy moving forwards to forge more of those partnerships? Absolutely, both partnerships within the water sector and cross-sectoral. So in whichever of the countries that we're working in, we have a, a real focus on integration and mostly, although there are others as well, that the, predominantly we focus on health integration with um, the health sector the education sector, uh, but also the broader water resource management sector. Okay, interesting. You touched on the topic of menstrual hygiene there, which is one that really interests me. So that, um, I've, I mean, I've, I've been working in the development sector for coming up to five years now. And even in that short space of time, I've seen menstrual hygiene become far less um, taboo and far more talked about in, in mainstream discussions that we have. And I know that WaterAid, um, IWDA and the Burnett Institute produced some research last September, September 2017, on menstrual hygiene management in the Pacific, which was commissioned and funded by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So if you could comment on that research, I'd, I'd be very interested to hear more and, and broadly how WaterAid is approaching the issue of menstrual hygiene and how we can continue to mainstream it in the sector one of my favorite topics menstrual (laughs) hygiene (laughs) me too (laughs) and it's such an important one um I was lucky enough to be in uh, Timor-Leste very recently and one of the things I got to go do was go into a school and speak to a whole school assembly um, and there were, I don't know, 400, 500 children gathered there and it was a new high school that had been built and WaterAid had partnered with the Department of Education, the Disabled People's Organisation and a women's group to design some inclusive, accessible toilets with menstrual hygiene facilities and it was this wonderful celebration that we were having um, about this infrastructure that was in that was going to really assist girls to have um, access to toilets and therefore not drop out of school when they had their periods um, or uh, at least not be at school when they had their periods. And I think historically the approach to menstrual hygiene has been somewhat infrastructure focused because what is so exciting to me about the work that we were doing in that school is that it's in partnership with Mari Stopes International and it's about a broader conversation around menstrual hygiene and the links to sexual and reproductive health because in my role as a CEO of WaterAid I talk a lot about um, you know, the second biggest killer of children under five is diarrheal diseases, and we know that that is um, predominantly preventable through access to water, sanitation and hygiene. And through this partnership with Murray Stopes, I learned a new statistic which really floored me, and that was that one of the, the biggest killer of adolescent girls in developing countries is unwanted pregnancies. And for me, even now, it just gives me goose pimples mm, thinking about it, draw, drawing that link between 
menstrual hygiene management, you know, it's a, it's a safe entry point to talk about toilets at schools, to then have the broader conversation about family planning, um, to really work with adolescent children, both boys and girls, but also the broader community um, to try and you know, help girls so that they're not having children um, in adolescence and having later having children later in life at a time of, of their choosing and safely. Mm. So it's as much uh, a structural or infrastructure focused intervention as it is almost a social cultural one. Mm. It, I think historically it's been a, we have somewhat focused more on the infrastructure and we're getting more sophisticated now um, in the sector and for water aid. I still remember back in 2008, the very first time I had to speak at a, a water sector gathering about menstrual hygiene and the audience was predominantly men um, and in Australia and it was still some somewhat taboo and I think confronting for that audience to be sitting and listening to me speak about menstrual hygiene. Um, I actually got them all to stand up and close their eyes and try to put themselves in the shoes of a young girl in Papua New Guinea getting her period for the first time. And because of a loss of culture, um, girls are often not finding hearing from their parents or traditional methods of storytelling through other women about their periods and so they think that they've got cancer or they're going to die and the humiliation and fear that comes with it so um it's it's been a, a really important journey that water aid and the sector's been on to to think more deeply about menstrual hygiene and then to think more deeply about all um uh, people that menstruate so including uh women with physical disabilities um, or intellectual disabilities, thinking about transgender people that may menstruate as well. So, as I said, you know, we're always thinking about how we can do better and how we can really scale up um, our impacts. For example, sorry, Rachel, I will stop talking no, about don't menstrual stop hygiene talking. in a moment. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> For example, in Timor-Leste, where it is such a taboo topic, we had this group of girls um, come to the capital from a regional area and speak at a menstrual hygiene event where the Minister for Health, she'd been somewhat reticent to have a public event because the team had made this banner and it read, Happy Menstrual Hygiene Day <laughs> in in Tetum, of course. And she was, you know, said, oh, look, you know, I'm really not sure that we can say menstruation in public. But, you know, these girls just won everyone over of saying, look, we've had enough of these taboos. There is no shame in having our periods. Uh, we want to pursue our education. We want to pursue our dreams. So we need to talk about it. And this is this is our story. So wow. it's, yeah, quite I think, amazing. I think you touched on a topic there that I find very interesting. I've, I've worked quite a lot in Papua New Guinea and my background is in anthropology and Papua New Guinea being the most linguistic and thus culturally diverse country on earth, over 800 distinct language groups, um, these many, particularly remote highland cultures, have, um, as you would know, a, a lot of beliefs around periods that it, that it is some sort of disease that you need to be isolated. That you know, there's all kinds of misconceptions, and I've always struggled with the idea of us as 
the white foreign donors coming in and saying to this culture, no, you've got it wrong. And um, this is, this is how it is. And, and, with so much of uh, the dialogue around menstruation being grounded in in these long-standing cultural beliefs, how do we get into them? Because because those are entrenched cultural beliefs, and how can we do that in a culturally sensitive way? And for me, that's where it's so important to be partnering with national women's organisations and to have the voice of the women, the girls from those communities and cultures um, to be to be driving the change for themselves and for it absolutely not to be one that is from outside. Because you know, I rarely speak to a woman in a in any culture uh, that doesn't have her vision and ideas of how things can change or the vision that she wants uh, for change. And I think. Uh, to me, I, I find that it, when we're thinking about gender equality and talking about cultural change, it can be somewhat of a, a defensive shutter that can be used to prevent change that does need to be ha- to happen. So I think that we do need to be sensitive, um, but we do also need to address these taboos. Mm. It's about finding that balance, isn't it? And I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, working with with local organisations and mm. promoting local ownership wherever possible is so important. And that's a nice segue into gender equality. So, obviously, water and sanitation, and and particularly around menstrual hygiene, is a really critical step towards gender equality. Um, but I think we're, uh, uh, as a sector, we're getting better at forming that linkage between water mm-hmm. and sanitation and gender equality, but we've still got a, a way to go. So can you explain the linkage between the two? Absolutely. So if, if we imagine for ourselves, let's fast forward through the life cycle of a woman. So a child, both boys and girls, are obviously impacted by diarrhea or repeated um, mild cases of diarrhea, which impact their gut, stop the absorption of nutrients, which then leads to underdevelopment and stunting of, of both boys and girls. Although, of course, there are gendered issues in different countries about how the order that food is given uh, to children. If we move to school, we've touched already on issues around menstrual hygiene, preventing girls from staying at school, but also the burden of water collection, which, of course, carries throughout their life of it traditionally being seen as a a woman's role to collect water Um, after school. If we're thinking about a, a, a young woman wanting to earn an income or have a livelihood, often, again, she's not able to be economically productive because she's got that burden of of collecting water, caring for people in the household that are sick. Um, If a a woman uh, is pregnant, when we look at the risks uh, for maternal health, uh, we know that 11% of maternal deaths are due to sepsis. And one of the key things preventing that to prevent that is for a woman to give birth where there is um, water, sanitation and hygiene. We know that a woman who gives birth where there isn't water and sanitation and hygiene faces a threefold higher risk of death in childbirth. If um, our 
poor woman by this stage is getting into older age. Um, we know as women get older with menopause, it, it, with heavy bleeding and so on, it, it's of course they want to have easier access to a toilet, um, issues around incontinence, again, for a woman to have the dignity of, of accessing a toilet for the dignity in their old age. And I have to say, we mustn't forget that throughout um, the life of a woman that doesn't have safe access to a toilet, she faces the risk of assault um, during open defecation at the launch of a, a movie in India aptly titled Toilet, A Love Story. The, 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 <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, uh-huh. The producer pulled out this statistic that just floored me. I had to listen to it twice to make sure I'd heard him right. He said, when India is open defecation free, which I hope it will be very soon, um, there'll, there'll be a reduction of rape and sexual assault by 30% because 30% of rapes and sexual assaults happen in India when women and girls are open defecating. So I think from a health, economic, there's so many aspects of how lack of water, sanitation and hygiene impacts women. And I think, as you say, the sector's got better at recognising that. I think where I would like to see us improve and where WaterAid is really striving is to also recognise that through water sanitation and hygiene programming, we can address some of the deep-seated gender norms and roles that we can, uh, through focusing on building the water sector in whichever country we're working in, really look at how we can have a transformative approach around gender, how we can have women in leadership, how we can really be thinking about it more deeply and address some of those structural institutional issues around gender equality. Mm. Yes. Wow. That was, <laughs> it was a great answer. Um, you've got me thinking now. When we talk about these structural issues around water access, mm. uh, I spent a few years at the World Bank, so I had a lot of discussions around the privatisation of utilities um, yep. which is not so much of a concern that came up in this region, but globally um, that is a, a, a concern of donors. Is there, I mean, do you have a view on whether privatising water improves water access or, I mean, is it easy to take a position on this? I, where, where I am really clear is that what we need to be focusing on is services and people getting their human right to water, sanitation and hygiene. And if that that can be done through private or public, um, publicly owned utilities, the importance though, if it is um, for me and thinking about WaterAid's mission and focused on the poorest of the poor, it needs to be with strong regulation around it. Um, for example, I was recently speaking with um, the head of the utility in Kampala in Uganda, and he's transformed that water utility to have incentive-based contracts for staff, moving from being purely public servants in that water utility, I believe, to being more like a privately run 
company. But those incentives are based around customer service. Those incentives are based around staff really caring that everyone gets access um, to water and sanitation. So they have a a pro-poor unit um, that uh, manages these quite innovative um, prepaid water points in slum areas so that they've got around some of these really tricky issues uh, in urban settings so that um, water, safe water, can be provided to communities through the utilities. Because utilities, whether they're government-owned or private, they do need to cover their costs um, and people do need to pay for water. But but we know that... Um, the often the poorest people actually pay the most in urban settings for water and are exploited. So where we can, where we really focus is not so much um, necessarily that it should be private or public, but really focusing on those services and really focusing on making sure that no one is is left behind and that we do work in in the really tricky areas of informal settlements and slums, um, which. You know, when you look at the the projections of where we're heading in the world, it's um, an area that we have to address. Mm, yes. Speaking of those projections, water futures is a very interesting topic. And I know that you attended the International Water Association's World Water Conference in Tokyo last month. Mm. And it was focused on shaping our water future. So what were your biggest takeaway messages? My biggest takeaway messages were, first of all, all of the risks, I can't remember the organisation that did it, but recently looking at the the global risks that we face, and water is in the top five. So water is central to our planet's future and to humanity's future. And I think one of my big takeaways from the International Water Association's World Water Congress was the role of the water sector in shaping our future as a planet and also our water future. And I'm seeing a real shift in the water sector of alignment with the sustainable development goals um, and also seeing the key role that the water sector plays in countries where it's stronger, where the sector is stronger than in others, at the solidarity across water professionals. We know that um, to achieve the sustainable development goals, of course, we need financing. I think the latest projections that we need, something like $100 billion to achieve um, SDG 6. All the money in the world, though, won't um, achieve SDG 6 unless we have the people, the human resources. Uh, and that was a key message for me that came away from um the Water Congress in Tokyo about the importance of the people of the water industry, um, how we create a culture within the water industry that takes it away from this mindset of perhaps that it's an engineering focus, because it's not. Um, When you look at water utilities of the future, they're innovative, they're customer focused, they're, they're planning organisations that work in partnership with so many different um, types of organisations to be a really strong utility shaping the future of the city or the nation that they're in. 
Mm. You've raised a really interesting point there. So roughly $100 billion to achieve goal six. Mm. Um, I know that overall there is approximately a $2.3 trillion funding gap between what's been committed by donors and what's actually required to achieve the sustainable development goals, which raises the question, where are we going to find $2.3 trillion? And mm. a, a part of that is obviously required for uh, funding water and sanitation programs. A big focus of this podcast is on how we leverage the private sector better to achieve the outcomes we need in international development. So from your perspective, who who pays? If it's not donors, who is going to fund water interventions? So to me and in the countries that we work, I guess there's a mixed focus that we have. So very much that we want to see governments financing the water sector, so really putting a priority there. But how do they finance it in a way that attracts other investment? Because actually water and sanitation is an awesome investment. When you look at the returns that you get, um, they range from a a $5 return to a $6.50 return. So it's a great investment for a nation. But also there's increasing private investment into water and sanitation. What we know, though, again, I come back to my point before, Rachel, is there's no point investing if there isn't a strong system in place and there isn't um, the capacity, the accountability, the regulation to manage that investment well. So a really fantastic example um, that we have is in, from Ethiopia. So in Ethiopia, over the last five years, um, we've been partnering with Yorkshire Water and the governments in 20 towns across Ethiopia. And over a five-year period, there's been about a million pounds invested. And the activities that have been done have been capacity-building activities of these 20 towns. So that's ranged from strategic planning, governance training, right through to supporting um, an asset manager in a warehouse, making sure she's got all of the assets the pipes, the whatever that are that are needed for that um, town water utility, and the incredible leveraging effect has been investment of I think it's forty six million pounds from the Ethiopian government, from the African Development Bank, into those twenty towns, and that's I think part of the answers that we need to have is really. F- focus, aid efforts, capacity building efforts that are system focused to really build the capacity so that then there can be that leveraging of other finance, the attracting of private finance. Um, Because I think that's what also what the private sector is looking for, building systems and capacity so that the investment, whether it's impact investing, private financing, government financing, taxpayers' money themselves. I think people are much happier to pay their water bills if they know that that's going to be well spent back on the infrastructure. That makes so much sense. And and I now come from a private sector perspective on this and, and the way you're explaining it is exactly the way that I think we would look to explain it to investors. At the end of the day, Philanthropic investment is an option, but impact investment where there is a social and financial return 
is is potentially a better option. I don't like to rank them, but yeah. <laughs> but um, I think we've had an introduction to this in Australia in recent years with uh, water bonds in the Murray Darling. Yep. I'm sure you know a lot more about that than I do, but I think we are starting to to understand opportunities to invest and impact invest in the water market. Um, I'm not sure whether Australian investors are looking at that on an international level yet. It seems like it's an idea that's still relatively in its infancy. Would that be right? Yes, that's certainly how I see it. And I think, again, that's one of the benefits for WaterAid with our strong connection to the water sector is I every time I speak to our partners from the water sector, I learn something new. So one of our partners in the UK, Anglian Water, I believe are one of the first utilities to access a green bond um, as new financing. And so for me, the 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 benefits of our partnership with the water industry is also looking at, well, how can we find, whether it's financing or technological or governance, what are some of the solutions that we can take to leapfrog uh, and accelerate progress in developing countries? And when, you know, the partnership I described before of Yorkshire Water and Ethiopia that learning is two-way. That has been the most incredible relationship and learning for the people, the individuals uh, from Yorkshire Water. Um, so it's it's very much that reciprocal learning, which I think is is so important um, for the sector and just in in life. Yeah, certainly. Oh, that's so interesting. We've touched on it there, but WaterAid, uh, you talk a lot on your website about work strengthening the water sector, which is beyond mm-hmm. purely aid delivery, but actually strengthening, as you've said, the systems and the structures and the mechanisms that shape access to water and sanitation. Can you explain what sector strengthening work is? I will do my best. Um, so sector strengthening, when so if we start from how water used to be approached in development, um, you know, it would be very much about, okay, let's put this well in or let's put in this gravity-fed system. It would be very much a focus on the infrastructure. We'd pack up our bags and we'd move along to the next important area of need. But, for example, in Timor-Leste, when we first started working there in 2005, um, assessment was done on water systems. And after two years, only 50% of the water systems were still working. After only two years. So the water sector has gotten much more aware that what we need to be doing is investing in the system, the whole system to keep it functioning. So for WaterAid, we um, think broadly around eight building blocks that we call them. And those building blocks are things like um, strategic planning, accountability mechanisms, service delivery, monitoring and evaluation, thinking about the environment. There are eight building blocks that we use to think about what do you need you know, if, if I cut it down to its absolute basics, you need the people, you need the financing and you need the planning. So wherever we're working, for example, I was just in Timor-Leste and we're working in a, a district called Likasar. And so we're working with the district government there 
to really look at the whole district and what does the whole district need to get universal coverage that is inclusive of everyone and sustainable. Um, And sustainable means that the government and communities need to invest in operations and maintenance. So we look wherever we're working at those eight building blocks and try and work out, well, where do we need to put our efforts? Because often some things are working, but other things are missing. And we do that assessment together with local partners and government to then decide together, well, what sort of capacity building support is WaterAid or other partners going to provide? And we really believe that that's the approach that will get us to universal access us modelling what's possible and then it being taken up nationwide uh, and in other countries as well. And we, we do that. Um, it's not just WaterAid that takes this approach. We um, have other organisations that we have alliances with that, that take a very similar approach. That makes so much sense. And I remember an example from years ago with the telecommunications sector, whereby many donors are willing to jump in and put telecommunications infrastructure in a town, but that's something that requires a lot of ongoing maintenance and upkeep. And that's that's what the donors aren't doing. And so after about six months, you've got totally redundant infrastructure. And because we're not we're not having those long term discussions around who's yep. who's actually going to maintain this, absolutely. And if you were to talk to any utility, a strong functioning utility anywhere in the world, most of their investment is in operations and maintenance, mm. not in new assets. So that's where we need to to get yeah. countries to. And often, you know, to be fair to the the people that are you know, that we're working with, they're, they're willing, they're just not necessarily able. Um, and so that's what the the blockage um, analysis shows us. Well, what's stopping them? Is it the fact that they're not getting enough financing? Okay, well, let's work with how do we uh, advocate to get more financing to the districts or uh, it's because they don't have a particular policy in place. For example, in Papua New Guinea, that's only, I think, Uh, five years ago that they passed their national wash policy and now that there's that policy framework in place we're seeing a lot more work um, for service delivery in Papua New Guinea. Mm. So interesting okay there's a couple of questions I want to cover before we finish up. Uh, First one being a leader in the not-for-profit sector I'm really interested in your take on some of the trends that we're seeing in the sector at the moment. Two that I find most interesting. The first is new financing models, uh, which Mm -hmm. we sort of touched on, but that's things like impact investment. Uh, I see a fundraising fatigue amongst the not-for-profit sector in Australia where we just don't want to rely as heavily on donations from the public uh, and are looking at more innovative ways of creating sustainable financing Um, not through those traditional donor-driven models. So that's the first one. And the second is this push towards consolidation. I think we're seeing more and more not-for-profits looking at consolidation, um, which then raises the question of how do we avoid mission drift and how do we stay true to our mission whilst also strategically consolidating with other orgs. So feel free to choose one of the two or take on them both, (laughs) but I'm, um, I'm interested in your take on those trends. Yeah, 
um, I think for me, if I go with the fundraising fatigue and some of the things that we're really thinking about doing differently. So um, one of the things that for me as a, a new CEO I did in my first um, few months, which is going to sound incredibly basic, but gosh, it was powerful. I, I, I went around and listened to our key stakeholders and asked them about their partnership with WaterAid, what we could do more of, less of, um, spoke to a, a large proportion of our 100 staff in the region and asked them what we could do more of and less of. And what really came through strongly was the importance of our partnership with the water industry. And so as I looked at the broader context for WaterAid and some of the threats to our sustainable um, financing model as an organisation being you know, we don't want to be over-reliant on any one source of income. We know that um, Australians are generous, but there is a, a limit, particularly looking at international development. There is fundraising fatigue that we can see evidence of. It, I, I've, with the team, we've really been thinking deeply about this. How can we achieve our mission, do more, but probably with less? Um, and we've really been looking at that with our partners, so with the water industry, to really think, well, how can we work differently? We know that you want to do more than donate to us. You want to be um, more deeply involved in our work. At the same time, we're working, for example, in urban areas, which is a place where water utilities in, for example, Australia, have the experience and expertise to offer. So we're testing at the moment some models where we are developing jointly concepts with our partners from the water industry. For example, with Arup, with an engineering company signed an MOU where we're looking at developing uh, proposals together, looking for the, that magic sort of shared value idea. So we're I think it is a challenge for the sector. I also don't think it's a, a new challenge. Um, I'm privileged on our board to have a real mix of um, people from the water industry and the development sector, and one of them is an incredible uh, woman called Wendy Rose, who was the CEO of Save the Children for some 20 years. Um, and so it's very reassuring for her when I, for me, when I come to her with a concern that, that you know, I'm, I'm seeing and she's like, we've been through that cycle before or that tide's gone out before don't worry it'll come back in so I think there's something to be said for obviously recognizing the challenges that we face now but also taking a few steps back and and seeing them in the the broader context of things and I am an internal eternal optimist and and as I put in my leadership manifesto when I started as CEO I, the quote from Margaret Mead is something I hold very close to my heart, which is never doubt that a small group of active citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's all that ever has. And that for me, uh, you know, I keep coming back to no matter what the challenges we face, I know that by coming together and playing to each other's strengths, we'll, we'll find a way to address them. I think that's such a perfect note to finish on. That's, that's just so lovely. And your your approach to leading water aid and, and, and your leadership of the sector more broadly is so inspiring and I'm really grateful that you do the work that you do and that you could share it with us today. So thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you, Rachel. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. 